Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Chinese Premier Li Qiang has called for closer China-U.S. cooperation while meeting visiting U.S. Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo in Beijing. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi has hosted British Foreign Secretary James Cleverly, the first top diplomat from the UK visiting Beijing in five years. And it's been two years, this August 30th, since the United States completed its withdrawal from Afghanistan. Welcome to World Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. Chinese Premier Li Qiang has met visiting U.S. Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo in Beijing. Li Qiang said he hopes both nations can stabilize and develop bilateral relations. He added that economic and trade exchanges are mutually beneficial, and Beijing is ready to pursue further dialogue and cooperation with Washington in trade. Raimondo said the U.S. has no intention of containing China, and it is not seeking to decouple. After meeting Chinese leaders and officials in Beijing, Raimondo stopped in Shanghai and visited the New York University of Shanghai. Now, for more, we're joined by Dr. Wang Huiyao. He is president of the Center for China and Globalization, a think tank based in Beijing. Thank you, Dr. Wang, for talking to us again. Thank you. Thank you. Now, first up, um, you, I'm sure you've been watching the trip very closely. In general, how do you see the tone of the meeting or the atmosphere of the meeting between Premier Li Qiang and Raimondo? Yes, I think I, I have been uh, watching this uh, with great interest. I think this is highly watched, uh, not only in China, U.S., but also worldwide. I, I just came from uh, come back from from Europe, and uh, this is mm-hmm. also highly watched in Europe. Uh, I think this time the uh, Secretary Raimondo's visit was, was very positive, very significant, and very timely because uh, I think uh, we already had a three secretary uh, level, high level visit before before her, and. Uh, and this time is more concrete and and also quite long time. I mean, also visiting two cities. Mm. And uh, she actually said that uh, she does, you know, U.S. doesn't want to decouple with China. U.S. doesn't want to contain China. Mm. And uh, and then she's uh, really saying, she, you know, uh, she's uh, really promoting the business, promoting the exchanges. So those are really good messages. I think it's high time we, we come to some common sense and come to some sensibility that uh, uh, the, the, the number one, number two largest economy in the world has to work together. There's no reason we, we mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, fight. And then, and then this is really send a lot of uh, uh, peacemaking uh, uh, atmosphere and is also, I think, highly watched by business and welcomed by business uh, throughout uh, U.S., China, and world. Mm, indeed. Now, um uh, Gina Raimondo has met with, uh, apart from Premier Li Qiang, she also met with Commerce, Secret- uh, Commerce Minister Wang Wentao, as well as uh, Tourism and Culture Minister, uh, Culture and Tourism Minister, excuse me, Hu Heping. Um, so in your opinion, what's the most important tangible result coming out of this trip that will benefit both sides? Well, I think there's a, there's a quite a few <clears throat> because this this meeting is really uh, I mean first of all the the meeting they have at the Minister of Commerce is the largest uh, 
uh, bilateral meeting that I've ever seen. You know, there's uh, there's more than 20, 30 people participated uh, from the television. I see that mm. of highly, highly uh, uh, active uh, participation. And uh, also, there's a concrete result. I mean, they, they, uh, so for the first time now, they, they, they established this uh, annually, uh, twice annually, uh, vice minister and DJ level meetings. Mm. And then they're going to keep the dialogue between minister and secretaries. And then they're going to also respond to the business concerns and, 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 and proposals, which is, I think this is really great now. We have this uh, uh, channel to open to, to dialogues and reflect directly business community's interests. I was quite uh, happy to see her visiting the, the Minister of Culture and Tourism mm-hmm. uh, because that is really the biggest uh, uh, you know, uh, stabilizing factor because if we can resume the people-to-people exchange, if we can go back to the 5 million uh, tourist traffic between U.S. and China before the pandemic, uh, that will be greatly uh, stabilizing the bilateral relations because that can generate a lot of goodwill, a lot of uh, uh, consumptions, a lot of... Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, people, I think, seeing believing people come to China or go to the United States, and they would really uh, break away a lot of myth and mistrust and misunderstanding. So this is really important. And I think she really uh, talked to no other minister but Minister of Culture. This shows that, uh, uh, you know, that China and the U.S. all think that people-to-people exchange uh, are very important, and we have to resume that. So hopefully mm-hmm. that we can resume flights, we can resume... We can simplify those procedures. Like I come back today, we do have to go through customers, fill the forms and things like that. We need to really simplify that. Mm. We're talking about this meeting between Gina Raimondo and Chinese Minister of Culture and Tourism, Hu Heping. Uh, after the meeting, China announced that China and the U.S. have agreed to hold the 14th uh, China-U.S. Tourism Leadership Summit in the first half of 2024 in China. That's next year to further revive and develop tourism uh, between the two. Um, how, wh- how important is it for leaders in tourism in both countries to talk to each other? I, I think this time actually is quite interesting. You know, the, the uh, Secretary Mondo came. I mean, before she came, she, she, the Minister of Commerce lifted the you know, 2030 company from China that used to be sanctioned or entity list from the U.S. So this is a great move. Mm. Uh, that they they delisting some of those uh, on the entity list for China. So this this is a good gesture. And again, I think uh, Secretary Raimondo meeting the Minister of uh, Culture and Tourism is another good gesture because uh, we remember just not too long ago, a few weeks ago, U.S. was issue uh, travel advisory uh, to the American citizens not travel to China, mm. and uh, you know this is a, a cautiously uh, advised. But now see the, the Minister of Commerce meet, meeting the minister, counterpart of the minister, minister of Culture and Tourism, which means, you know, U.S. wants to see more business travel, more mm-hmm. Americans come to China, more Chinese go to U.S., which is great. I mean, so those are good gestures. I think that is really uh, not even that. They have a, they have a set up time for, for, for a meeting next year, but I hope they can do more, maybe designate a travel year for U.S., a travel year for China. Mm. And, uh, you know, I mean, we, 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 like, like last next year, we are having a travel and culture with France. Mm. Why can't we have a culture and travel year with, uh, uh, with U.S.? I mean, mm. you know, meeting the Minister of Culture and the Tourism is the right thing to do. Mm. And it's really should be encouraged. Mm. As you said, um, people-to-people exchanges between the two can generate a lot of goodwills, which is badly needed. So um, what are some things that can 
the both sides can do right now, uh, apart from uh, what you already mentioned, you know, the revival of uh, flights between the two sides. Well, no, I think there's more. I mean, there's. Uh, I really hope they could do more. For example, flight is the most important. We need to get that traffic uh, really go, go, going again. Mm. And now, now have only 40 flights, but we used to have uh, 400 flights. You mm. know, that's only a 10 percent flight. That's number one. Number two, I think we need to have more student exchanges. Let's have more uh, American students come to China, and uh, and then let's have more tourism to start. And then that's also, you know, good things that we see the U.S.-China science agreement, uh, which has been extended for six months. We hope that can be renewed uh, when the time comes. That was really fundamental, mm. uh, very good uh, atmosphere for the, for the people to people and the student and the scientific exchanges for the last four decades. Mm. And of course, I'd like to see the the consulate that's been shut down in both Houston and Chengdu. I mean, mm. Chengdu is my hometown. I hope <laughs> that we can resume those uh, consulates so that can issue more visas for people to travel. And also, I want to see, uh, of course, uh, there, there's 1,300 Chinese companies or individuals on American sanctions. Mm. So that could be, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that now we have um, 20, 30 companies has been delisted. I hope there's, there could be 300 or even, even more to be delisted. And furthermore, I, I really like to see, uh, you know, there's a, there's a good there's good atmosphere, there's good spirit. It can really pave the way for the G20 mm. when the top leaders, you know, G20 leaders, and particularly President Xi and President Biden, mm. uh, they can have a good atmosphere for further meetings there to really see what has uh, has gone so far the, uh, since Bali summit last time, mm. and also pave the way that. Uh, uh, in the, uh, November, we're going to have an APEC summit in the U.S. Uh, in San Francisco. By the time President Xi probably will travel there, let's have a visit, you know, so we can gradually stabilize the relation. I mean, we, we don't have to be really uh, a rival of each other. We can really uh, we have friendly co- co- competition, but we have a, a lot of cooperation. Mm. Uh, that is really the, the, the theme, the fundamental, uh, you know, basics that we need to stick to. I think that mm. is really important. Come back to the common sense. Come back to the normalcy, and let's let's get along and, and coexist mm. peacefully together, and for the sake of the world, uh, mm. uh, for the benefit of all the uh, other countries in the world, we have the moral responsibility to do that mm. for both largest economy in the world. Certainly, that is a hope. Now, uh, Dr. Wang, on Tuesday, the two sides uh, have already started a meeting. Uh, uh, through the newly established uh, Export Control Information Exchange Mechanism. Uh, how do you see the necessity of the mechanism? And on the other hand, will the mechanism exchange uh, change the fundamentals in export control policies of both sides? I think that's that's really important. I mean, we, we need to really start talking. That's that's really we, we badly need this. For example, I mean, the tariff, we levy mm-hmm. on each other, even though U.S. are levy more. But that, we, we need to really dismantle some of that because uh, you know, for the last uh, for the 20, 30 years, I mean, the, the trade with China, U.S. has kept its inflation low. Now the U.S. inflation has been gone up so high in recent, recent months and years. So it's time that we, we lift those tariffs. And China can lift too. I mean, we, we both should lift those sanctions and tariffs on both sides. That's something we can do. And on the export side, I, I think, you know, uh, there, there's uh, U.S. was saying, okay, let's have a a uh, small yard, high fence, but how how yard, how small can that be, and how high mm-hmm. the fence can be? It all needs to be clarified, discussed, and uh, you know, really uh, uh, in consultation with each other, rather than just about unilaterally. Oh, say this is high fence, that is a small yard. 
it's not really clear. But also, this has actually impacted other countries, like like on the chips. You you impact uh, uh, you know uh, Taiwanese companies, Japanese companies, Korean company. I mean, the reason they become the largest chip companies is because they're close to China. They are selling billions, billions to China. If they mm-hmm. do not sell that money, how can they support their R and D and continue their uh, viability? So so I think those things that we you know. Uh, the meeting uh, happening is really great. I mean, we, we really want to see more of that, mm. uh, that so they can consultate and then so they can be very careful when they decide to 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 to, to put, mm. put put a new sanctions or new entity list on both sides. We have to really talk and uh, mm. gradually come to a reasonable understanding and and uh, and the stability is the most important. Right. Now, uh, Dr. Wang Remando is the third U.S. Cabinet Secretary visiting Beijing this summer, following visits by U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and then Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. I mean, how optimistic should we uh, be um, about, you know, the, the revival or the or the prospect of, uh, you know, bilateral relations returning to a much more healthy state? Well, I think that uh, certainly, I mean, uh, since Trump, uh, you know, uh, administration six, seven years ago, that has really soured uh, uh, most of the relations. Now, we're probably at the lowest uh, point since uh, two countries established diplomatic ties uh, since 1979. But but again, you know, I mean, after all those uh, agonizing, uh, all those, uh, 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 you know, uh, rivalry type, type of spirit, uh, uh, you know, and also the populism running high in both countries, and also, it's affecting uh, the war now. Mm. Uh, people come to realize: look, we have to really uh, uh, look forward. We have to really fighting the common threats like climate change, pandemic, you know, cybersecurity, and and all the all the other digital things that we can work together. So, so there's much more important things that the China U.S. has to work together, right. uh, so that uh, you know we we come to a, a really. A, a, a common sense now that we prevail. So, so okay, let's let's talk. I mean, let's stabilize. I think you know, stabilization is the key word. Mm. Let's put a floor and then let's stabilize that, and then let's gradually lift some of that. I think, by, you know, mm. I was talking to Joseph Nye, the Harvard uh, uh, professor, professor uh, mm. some time ago. He was saying maybe another 10, 15 years we will reach a new equilibrium. Mm. We understand each other. We'll finally accept each other. We realize, you know. We are in a global village. We, we cannot really, we are all human races. We, we have to work together. So, mm. so I think if we have that, if we can really find a formula to, to really coexisting through the Indeed. consultation, discussion, and of course other countries' involvement, we mm. could probably live peacefully. So that, I think, you know, uh, not only the, the two secretaries, but also the John, uh, John Kerry, you know, mm. environment and Anvil has come. And let's, let's really... Uh, cherish the spirit of Dr. Kissinger, who is a hundred years old, still travels to China, you know, <laughs> right. to maintain his relations. So, mm-hmm. so touching and moving. So, I think you know we should really learn from him and really put the sake of the world peace and prosperity and mankind in, in mind. Mm-hmm. And then let's really keep keep the relationship stabilized yes. and you know mm-hmm. lift somewhat. Uh, for the better of the world. Right. Well, it's in, an interesting time for China-U.S. relations, but thank you. We appreciate your time and your insight. That was Dr. Wang Huiyao, president of the Center for China and Globalization, a think tank based in Beijing. Coming up, we'll take a look at British Foreign Secretary James Cleverly's trip to Beijing. This is World Today. Stay with us. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievski Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of the world today. 
In my opinion, The Wall Today is one of the best China radio programs. In The Wall Today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please, come to join us. Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China, on China and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi has hosted British Foreign Secretary James Cleverly. Cleverly is the first top diplomat from the UK visiting Beijing in five years. Announcing the visit earlier, China's Foreign Ministry spokesperson Wang Wenbin said China and the UK shoulder the common responsibility of promoting world peace, stability and development. Wang Wenbin also said maintaining and growing bilateral relations serves the common interests of the peoples of both countries. Now, for more on uh, James Cleverly's trip to Beijing, we're joined on the line by David Martin-Jones, visiting professor at War Studies Department, King's College, London. Uh, thank you, Professor Jones. Thank you for inviting me. Now, uh, Professor, James Cleverly is the first top diplomat from the UK to come to Beijing in five years. How would you understand the background or the reasons for you know such a long time of lack of communication among the top levels between the two? Well, I think this comes down to um, two things, really. One is, obviously, COVID is... Mm. Um, you know, limited the amount of diplomatic contacts that were going on. The second was the uh, security law with regard to Hong Kong, which caused tensions between, you know, British and uh, Chinese authorities. And I suppose a third issue is, um, you know, since 2020, there's been worries about uh, China and security for the UK's telecom sector, mm. and, you know, it's 2020 that the decision not to allow Huawei to roll out its 5G network mm. was also an issue. So those are the three Professor, issues that account for the... Mm. Yeah. Professor, let's be honest. How important is China to UK today? And what does UK seek from China? Well, I think um, you know what you were saying previously. The, the importance of trade with China is is very high. You know, so Britain has a uh, since the golden era started around 2011-12 with Cameron and Osborne. There was great sort of hopes for the bilateral trade and um, education and social links. That's um, become a bit more. Um, difficult since uh, 2019, 2020, really. But mm. I think there are hopes that the trade relationship can be continued and grown, especially in areas like green renewable technology. Mm. Well, um, Professor, so uh, how much do you think the change in UK's China policy has to do with the change in America's policy? I mean, is the UK trying to seek an independent China policy these days, or is it merely following America's lead? 
Well, I think that's a good question. I mean, it should be um, carving out its own independent policy. This was the hope post-Brexit that, you know, Britain was going to be global. And in in the um, uh, defence review of about 2020, the first one under the Johnson government, the idea was that the relationship with China could be cooperative and ongoing, despite Huawei issues. Um, more recently, it seems that Britain, you know, just kowtows to the United States mm. and um, has, has got no clear view of what it's doing either with Europe or with um, the Indo-Pacific. Although it has, you know, it's, it's joining the, the trans. Pacific Trade Partnership. Mm. Well, very briefly, um, Professor, how how should we understand the the protect, align, and engage strategy uh, announced by Cleverly earlier on China? Britain needs a relationship with China. It needs to work out how that should be done without compromising its its own interests and and being too close to the Americans. Mm. Right. Well, it is certainly very complicated, and uh, we'll see. You know how the trip in Beijing will pave the way uh, further for China UK relations. But thank you. That was David Martin Jones, a professor from King's College London. This is World Today. We'll be right back after a short break. Chief Economist of Hang Seng Bank, China. The World Today is a real fun program. You will hear interesting people discussing global trend, economic event, what's happening in and outside of China. So, friends around the world, hope you can join us. Welcome. I'm Elaf Elard. Economics professor and member of the Data Science and AI Center at New York University, Shanghai. On the World Today program, you can find in-depth and impartial insight, as well as critical commentary on key trends in the Chinese economy, financial technology, business, and blockchain. To prepare for the world tomorrow, join me on World Today. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. It's been two years, this August 30th, since the United States completed its withdrawal from Afghanistan, ending its 20-year presence in the country after its October 2001 invasion. Research from the Costs of War project of Brown University shows the 20-year-long war had taken the lives of more than 46,000 civilians and led to at least 5.9 million Afghans fleeing the country or in internal displacement. So how has the Afghan interim government performed in solving the country's problems? And what are the prospects of the Afghan development? Now, for more, we're joined by Professor Joseph Syracuse. He's Dean of Global Futures with Curtin University in Australia. Thank you, Professor, for joining us. In your observation in general, how has Afghanistan recovered from the war since two years ago, especially in terms of reconstruction? Well, it, it has been struggling a great deal. Uh, uh, a lot of the Western powers 
have held back uh, reserves that it had frozen, has held back um, humanitarian aid and that kind of assistance because um, uh, the Taliban has refused to do certain things. They're trying to hold the Taliban hostage uh, or blackmail or blackmailing them into trying to do, and the Taliban don't want to do these things. So in, in terms of um, life expectancy, in terms of livability and mm. And all the rest of it, I think uh, Afghanistan's gone backwards over the last two years. Well, um, Professor, was there enough reflection in U.S. foreign policy making regarding, you know, the Afghan war in the past two years? If, if uh, yes, what are some of you know the debates? Uh, look, I've I've lived a very long and mm. scholarly life, and mm. Americans haven't even reflected yet on the lessons of Vietnam or North Korea mm. or, or Taiwan from the 1950s. Uh, Americans uh, have a, a great deal of trouble reflecting on these things in, in terms of the, the lessons learned. One of the things we should have known about Afghanistan, and I was opposed to it because it was just a bad idea. The United States tends to go charging into these places culturally blind doesn't know anything about the tribalism or the customs or religion, etc., and then tries to impose its own form of government or nation building on these people. And for the past 20 years, the United States has been selling uh, Afghan, this American model, which included uh, human rights or, or, or education and positions in government and other places for women and girls. And, and that was all going to fall apart when the United States left. Mm. And the United States, the way the United States left was um, was very, very messy. Uh, people died. Uh, thousands of American, uh, thousands of people friendly to the United States are left behind. And, and Leon Panetta, uh, a former Secretary of Defense, uh, has the best estimate of this. About mm. two years ago, he said, the United States uh, exit from Afghanistan was so bad that the United States will probably have to invade Afghanistan in the next 18 year, 18 months or two years to, to re, um, reimpose its will on them because they're not doing any. The government didn't hold up. It's not living out the promises. The president of the day took off with a helicopter with money bags mm-hmm. stashed inside. I mean, Afghanistan fell to the Taliban. And at the end of 20 years, the United States had nothing to show. It had a political and military and counter-terrorism um, uh, failure there. Mm. It's had a failure to do anything since. The Biden administration has maintained an ambassador to deal with the, the Taliban and, and a woman to deal with the Taliban's uh, views on women and girls and school and university and the like. Uh, none of that's coming good. And in the meantime, the United States holds back um, uh, foreign reserves, which... Mm-hmm. Afghanistan would need very, very badly. So it's kind of a holding pattern. So has the United States learned anything from Afghanistan? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. The war on terror was um, uh, just a, a marginal success. In the beginning, they, the Americans and the West did what they wanted. After a while, none of it worked out. You just can't invade Iraq and Afghanistan and all these places without sooner or later having to pay the piper.
Hmm. Well, as you mentioned in the past two years, the U.S. has frozen nearly 9.5 billion U.S. dollars in assets belonging to the Afri- Afghan、um, central bank and stopped shipments of cash to the nation as it tries to keep,、uh, you know, the Taliban-led government from、uh, from accessing the money. So,、uh, in d- more details, how do you think that has influenced the recovery of the Afghan economy? It strangled the economy. The economy cannot recover without that money. Can't pay for anything, and、mm-hmm. that, that money is not. They're not supposed to get any money until they do certain things. So,、uh, you know, the United States lost the game. Sometimes you go into a place and you lose, and when you lose, you should lose uh, great uh, with with some kind of graciousness. You give them the money back because right now Afghanistan has severe refugee problems. It has severe food insecurity problems. It has military security problems. It's got a problem with them.、Uh, With ISIS and its Pakistani border, I mean, Af- Afghanistan is a is a does an accident waiting to happen again.、Mm-hmm. So you should give them back the money. Now, what are they going to do with the money? Well, they're going to have to feed their own people, or the people will rise up sooner or later. But、um, you, you can't starve people in the hopes that they're going to put pressure on their government. That kind of sanction、mm-hmm. is not only morally wrong; it doesn't work. Sanctions only work forty percent of the time. It tends to hurt the average person. I remember I was in South Africa for Mandela's release,、mm-hmm. and I noticed that all these Western sanctions on South Africa did not affect South Afrikaners. It affected poor、uh, South African blacks. You know, these things just don't work.、Mm-hmm. Seen it with my own eyes. Well, then, talking about you know some of the immediate needs by the Afghan people, what do you think、uh, are some of the things、uh, that can be done by the international community these days? Well, this is the classic case for United Nations intervention.、Mm-hmm. Okay,、um, the secretary,、uh, general secretary of the United Nations, should take the lead here. He should go to Afghanistan with his economic and social teams, look around and see what has to be done in a hurry, and then get the money that is owed Afghanistan, you know, and and make sure that food is paid for, maybe education, whatever it is, or or infrastructure. So this is a classic job for the international community to be led by the United Nations, which is you know what the United Nations is supposed to do. Mm. Well,、uh, China has hosted uh, uh, quite a few meetings uh, along with the、uh, Afghan government, as well as、uh, you know Afghan Afghanistan's neighbors, for example,、uh, Russia, Iran,、uh, Pakistan. I mean,、um, how do you think you know the foreign policy or the you know the mediation among Afghanistan's、um, uh, neighbors c- can work for for the recovery of、uh, the Afghan economy? Well, I mean, Afghanistan has always been、uh, a, mm. a rival, a, the place for rivalries for the the great powers or the、mm. you know the near powers, as they used to call it during the Russian era of the out of the, the czars. I mean, it's a you know it's it's a cockpit for great power rivalry, and、uh, Pakistan, as you know, is always on the verge of. Mm-hmm. Of disappearing or on the verge of disintegration, India always has a a very healthy hand in Afghanistan. Russia and China must pay attention to Afghanistan because it's nearby,、mm-hmm. and so you know uh, uh, we we need the great powers in that region to work in a multilateral fashion to sort of、uh, 
take the uh, the worst parts of the problems out of the equation. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, the powers in that region are going to have to continue to consult in order to uh, make sure they do not clash in the region or do not side with one or the other. I mean, the, the Taliban are completely in control. Mm. And so they're the government of the day. Uh, I like uh, mm. the old uh, 19th century American technique, I think started by Thomas Jefferson. The tradition was you recognize whatever government is in power, not the one you would like in power, mm. or not the one who isn't there in power. You recognize them, who they are and what they are. Mm, and if right. you don't like it, tough. You have to deal with it anyway. Well, uh, certainly, you know, this is um, some topic that that's been, you know, watched by global press. But thank you, Professor. We appreciate your time and your insight. That was Professor Joseph Sirkuza, Dean of Global Futures with Curtin University in Australia. This is World Today. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Einar Tangen, a political and economic analyst and senior fellow at the independent Taiher Institute. World Today is news without the hype and business commentary that is informed and up-to-date, presenting the facts and asking incisive questions. So join us if you are someone who needs to know what is happening in China as it is happening. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. The number of available jobs in the United States has dropped for the third consecutive month. Official data show employment openings were below the 9 million in July, dipping below that number for the first time since 2021. Meanwhile, U.S. consumer confidence fell more than expected in August among renewed concerns about inflation. What do all these numbers say about the U.S. economy? What will the Federal Reserve do at its monetary policy meeting in September? For more, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Aina Tangen, a senior fellow at Taihe Institute. So the number of available jobs in the United States have dropped for the third consecutive months. Aina, now tell us about the latest job figures. What are the main reasons of it? And what does it mean for the U.S. economy? Well, this is uh, the third month that in a row that uh, you've seen a drop. Um, and it's now below the 9 million uh, level. So what this means is it depends on who you're talking to. If you're talking to American consumers, it's not exactly the way they want it because the jobs that are being lost are high paid, the jobs that are available are low paid. If you talk to the Fed, they'll be very happy because they'll say, oh, soft landing, we've handled everything properly, we've depressed the economy just the right amount to get to our 2% inflation um, Mm -hmm. target. And the very important consumer confidence figure has also been released for the month of August, and uh, it showed that the consumer confidence in America put back sharply in this latest survey. So how would you explain that? Well, you have to consider the uh, source first. This is the conference board. It's considered um, uh, a global Fortune 500 uh, entity. It expresses the uh, views and it keeps track of data for its members. When they come out and they say, look, uh, everything's declined to just above a recession, that is really worrying. Uh, what you had was um, an eight-point drop. Uh, 80 is um, the area where you start worrying about uh, recession. If it goes below that, it's at currently at 80.2, and that's a drop from 88 
uh, in July. So very, very worrying. Um, they, what they cite is corporate earnings, job openings are narrowing, interest rates continue to rise, big ticket items are more expensive, uh, and they expect uh, interest rates. But more importantly, uh, they looked at consumer feelings, and they it's quite clear that uh, consumers are not feeling the way they were uh, post-COVID. And the Federal Reserve will take all of this into account and other things when it decides what to do about the interest rate in September. And the Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell spoke at Jackson Hole last week that uh, he could have been more hawkish, more aggressive than he was. So how do you look at this message? Well, as I said, there's two realities uh, out there, or two narratives. One is uh, Jeremy Powell and his insistence that a 2% inflation target is a must. Uh, there can be no uh, deviation from that. And uh, the rest is about the reality for um, American consumers, which, um, you know, the greatest amount, over 66%, live uh, paycheck to paycheck, who have seen their real disposable earnings continue to decline. So, yeah, he's thinking that he's done very well, uh, that uh, the 2% will be achieved somewhere in the next uh, half year. But it's, you know, it's, it's good from the perspective that it doesn't look like he'll uh, push through another rate uh, increase. Uh, that helps not only consumers, but it also helps uh, countries around the world. But he still is uh, fixated. Mm. And the big question now is, when will the U.S. Federal Reserve stop raising the interest rates, essentially in the last couple of years, from zero to 5.25 percent? So have all these rate hikes done their jobs? Well, yes and no. It depends on how you're looking at it. Um, you know, if you're somebody who lost their job, a high paying tech job in the Silicon Valley, uh, these rates are, you know, a disaster. Um, it's really driving the global slowdown in addition to the post-pandemic recovery. And it's, it's, it's not good. But if you're Jeremy Powell, you're going to pat yourself on the back and you say that I'm, I'm uh, guiding uh, the nation to, into what they call is a, a soft landing. But, you know, the question is, has he? Uh, has his insistence on this 2% inflation, uh, is it actually going to help America or is it going to actually push it into recession? Mm, and for the U.S. domestic economy, what do you think are the structural problems of it? The structural problems are, and, and this is something which I don't think the Fed has taken into account, is that you have supply-side inflation. This is uh, all the things that have done, the tariffs that uh, the U.S. has unilaterally imposed, not only on China, but uh, other countries around the world, and which they still maintain. Uh, and then you have this, uh, what I call, service wage inflation. If you start looking at wages across the board, Actually, for consumer goods, food, et cetera, et cetera, it's actually very low over the last 20 years. Where you've seen massive increases is anything to do uh, with, uh, with services. So education, 150% up, hospitals, 200%. And those types of things, you can't uh, – rate hikes aren't going to change that. But that just pushes uh, more debt onto an already overburdened uh, situation. So uh, as I said, there's two different narratives in the U.S. Uh, right now, uh, the reality of the people who are living and uh, this kind of uh, theoretical ideas that the, the Fed has. You mentioned the Federal Reserve interest rate hikes. And how does the U.S. Federal Reserve endless monetary policy circle expanding and shrinking, namely controlling the supply of dollar 
benefit itself, and at the same time, at the expense of the world economy, especially the emerging economies. Okay, so let's just talk a little bit first about what U.S. Treasuries、uh, are supposed to be. They're supposed to be a holding currency. The U.S. dollar is everyone trades it, so people tend to keep U.S. dollars in their、uh, overseas、uh, accounts so that they can readily use them, so they're not changing them back and forth into their own currency. Um, so it's supposed to be very stable, and it's allowed the U.S. to、uh, finance its massive and growing debt at、uh, very, very low rates.、Um, but when the Fed starts using it as an economic tool to control the U.S. economy, it has、um, really bad effects on developing countries who have dollar-denominated loans. As the rates go up. Dollars flow out into the United States to take advantage of the rates.、Uh, that means that currency, local currencies, are depressed. They either raise their rates, which further depresses their、uh, economies,、uh, or they、uh, will see a run on their currencies. And at that point, they have to pay more、uh, in their own currencies for their dollar-denominated debt. So it puts a tremendous burden on them. Uh, what's odd about it is that when confronted,、um, one of the governors of the Fed,、uh, when asked about the damage that was being done to these、uh, developing countries, he just he, he passed it off and said, "Look, America's economy is the leading economy, and these other economies will do better if we do better,、uh, assuming this kind of trickle-down idea." I don't think most people are buying that. Mm. And rating agency Fitch downgraded the U.S. government debt by one notch, saying that it expected a worsening fiscal situation for the U.S. in the next three years. So, what's your take on that? Fitch、uh, downgraded U.S. debt, but on top of that, you have all three major rating agencies: Moody, S&P, and Fitch downgrading banks. Why is this important? Because banks are, you know, if banks are doing poorly. All right, and they're、uh, being downgraded. It's really a reflection on the economy、uh, or an asset bubble.、Uh, either one, which is not good for the rest of the、uh, country or the world, in that matter. So, the debt is、uh, worsening. You start seeing、um, consumer debt over seventeen trillion dollars in combined mortgage and、uh, credit card debt. The credit card rates continue to increase,、um, and also mortgage rates continue to increase, which puts A depressing、uh, depressor on the housing market over the long term. Although they've been citing、uh, new housing starts out there, but that's mostly due to the fact that people are holding on to their mortgage rates because、um, a few years ago they locked them in at you know two percent, and they don't want to see that go away. That was Ina Tangen, a senior fellow at the Taihe Institute, speaking with my colleague Zhao Yang. This is World Today. We'll be right back. Welcome. I'm Elaf Elard, economics professor and member of the Data Science and AI Center at New York University, Shanghai. On the World Today program, you can find in-depth and impartial insight, as well as critical commentary on key trends in the Chinese economy, financial technology, business, and blockchain. To prepare for the world tomorrow, join me on World Today. Dan Wang, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China. The World Today is a real fun program. You will hear interesting people discussing global trend, economic event, what's happening in and outside of China. So, friends around the world, hope you can join us. 
Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. The Chinese embassy in Japan has reiterated China's firm opposition to Japan's ocean discharge of the nuclear contaminated wastewater from the crippled Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. Chinese ambassador to Japan Wu Jianghao elaborated on China's solemn position during his meeting with Japanese Vice Foreign Minister Masataka Okano. Japan started releasing nuclear contaminated wastewater from the plant into the Pacific Ocean late last week. Japan's local fishermen and neighboring nations and Pacific Island countries have been expressing opposition to Japan's move. Tokyo Electric Power Company, or TEPCO, the plant's operator, said it plans to carry out the first round of release over 17 days to discharge 7,800 tons of radioactive wastewater. Now, for more, we're joined by Liu Zhiqin, his senior fellow of Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at Renmin University of China. Thank you, Mr. Liu, for talking to us again. Thank you. Now, in general,、uh, how do you comment on China's position to suspend the imports of all aquatic products originating from Japan in response to Japan's、uh, discharge of these wastewater? I should say that the Chinese government's、uh, response to the Japanese unreasonable discharge of the wastewater water into ocean is very right. It's honest. It's a legal action. Because, as we know, that the Chinese government has always reiterated its priority to protect people's lives as the first line or as the topmost priority. If we find that the Japanese government discharged this uh, uh, radio uh, radioactive uh, contaminated water in the ocean without any hundred、uh, percent、uh, security and guarantee. That means that China、uh, should do something that、uh, to prevent that、uh, possible disease and possible、uh, harm to the people's health will take place in the near future.、Mm-hmm. So this action is very important that, uh, to show that the Chinese government is really、uh, seriously and honest to its、uh, promise to protect its people's interests.、Mm-hmm. But also, as we know, that、uh, this discharge of the water into The ocean is also harmful to the, all over the world, not only for China, but for South Korea, actually for the whole ocean. So this is a big challenge for all us.、Mm. Now,、uh, help us understand how big a market China is to Japan's aquatic products.、Uh, according to the information or statistic released by both sides,、uh, Japan and China, I think that China. China and Hong Kong and the United States are the first three largest import of the Japanese aquatic products, especially mainland and also Taiwan, or including this Hong Kong. That together over 5.8 billion yuan every year. This is a very normal volume, and also that's all occupied already over 55 to. 50 percent of total export of the Japanese aquatic products. So this is a, a very important market to the Japanese uh, uh, fishing industry. So we can see that、uh, why this、uh, the Japanese government also so very anxious about the China's、uh, opposition and、uh, China's re- response. So because China's market is so huge, so important for this、uh, fishermen or the fishing industry in. 
in Japan, and also uh, uh, fishing-related industries, not only fishing seafood itself, but also related, for instance, restaurants and the supply lines, or, and also uh, logistics-related. So something that closely combined a huge industrial network in Japan. So this is a very important uh, factor for the Japanese uh, uh, economic recovery. Mm. Well, the Japanese government has rolled out a series of policies to help with local fishing industries, such as you know providing subsidies. And TEPCO also announced they might provide compensation to local industries in face of international community downgrading Japanese products. Um, how do you think these measures will work out? I should say that <laughs> very uh, uh, ridiculous for the people to understand the real problem that uh, the Japanese response to the is fishermen. If the local fishermen mm. have suffering heavy losses, they are concerned about the quality, about the security of the discharged worker. How can the Japanese government convince the other people all over the world? Mm. So that's why so it's so, why I find that very funny that one side they said we are very safe, we are secured uh, water. And the other side, they subsidized their own fishermen, fisher industry. This is a very contradictive actions and the problems. So from this action that the people all over the world can see what the real happened behind this discharge of this water. Mm. This water charge discharged by Japanese government will have risky and heavy potential problems. Mm. Well, thank you. That was Liu Zhiqin, Senior Fellow of Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at Renmin University of China. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. A quick recap of the headlines. Chinese Premier Li Qiang has called for closer China-U.S. cooperation while meeting visiting U.S. Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo in Beijing. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi has hosted British Foreign Secretary James Cleverly in Beijing. And it's been two years this August 30th since the United States completed its withdrawal from Afghanistan. Now, for further discussions, you can follow us on the X platform at CGTN Radio to listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, download our podcast by searching World Today. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Thank you for staying with us. Bye for now.